Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got two guests who might know each other better than any two prior guests of this podcast ever have, brothers Ben Nichols and Jeff Nichols. Now, Ben Nichols is the singer, guitarist, and chief lyricist for the long-running Memphis band Lucero. And when I say long-running, I mean it. Assuming you're listening to this podcast the day we release it, the band played its first show exactly 25 years ago today, on April 13th of 1998. In that time, they've released an even dozen albums, making the journey from punk-influenced country, or maybe that's country-influenced punk, to soul to straight-up rock and roll. I've always felt like Lucero was the southern version of the Hold Steady, purveyors of great story songs and always an incredibly good time live. The newest Lucero album came out in February, and it's a very intentional back-to-basics rock record called Should Have Learned By Now. Check out a bit of Makin' If We Make It from that record right here. Now, Ben's younger brother, Jeff, followed a similar independently creative path, but down a different one. He's a successful and incredible film director whose credits include Mud, starring Matthew McConaughey, a drama about the real-life battle over interracial marriage called Loving, and my personal favorite, Take Shelter, in which Nichols' frequent collaborator, Michael Shannon, plays a family man who may or may not be coming unglued. Each is a very different from the next, and each is excellent. Jeff Nichols' next film is called The Bike Riders, and it will star Tom Hardy, Austin Butler, and Jodie Comer, among others. It's very loosely based on a book of the same name that Jeff was introduced to by Ben. As you'll hear in this conversation, it's not the only time the two have influenced each other. They talk about how Lucero songs have found their way into Jeff's movies, about how the brothers came upon the same exact story in different ways, and about Jeff's potential future as the man who may attempt the impossible, adapting some of Cormac McCarthy's more complicated books, including Blood Meridian, for the big screen. Enjoy. Um, yeah, Ben Nichols and Jeff Nichols here. I'm glad they went for this. I've done one of these podcasts before with Mike Ness. We did it over Zoom during the pandemic. I remember him asking me, he was like, am I interviewing you or are you interviewing me? (laughs) (laughs) And so I kind of talked about it myself for a little bit. Right. And then I asked him a bunch of questions. (laughs) And I think that's pretty much how it went. Should we give some people some context? Yeah, we're brothers. We're brothers. Ben's four years older than I am. Yeah. And we grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. And Ben's a musician, and I'm a filmmaker. But yeah. you should probably know all that if you're listening to this. They probably are. They probably know it. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, but uh, it's the worst when, whenever anyone asks me what I do for a living, I'm like, oh, I make movies. And they're like, well, like documentaries and stuff. And I don't know if I just look like a documentary <laughs> filmmaker. But then I have to say, then I have to say, like, no, like movies, like in theaters and stuff. Anything I would have seen. And that's the worst part of the conversation. Which, which movie do you pick to tell them? Usually Mud, because Mud. Mud was the one that the most people saw. The worst is when you start running through them and nope. they're just, they're just nope. like, and then it's kind of like, well, ah, Michael who? Like you asked no. me, like you got me into this position. I don't, <laughs> and then inevitably I feel 
Horrible. Nah, you say mud, and people usually know. That one got around for sure. I mean, they all have in their own right. Midnight Special, people bring that one up all the time now. So I think it's, you know, on streaming and other places, they have these different lives. And so that one keeps coming back. And people seem to really like it. It's a real fun one. I've read some real good reviews on that one, too. Some kind of thoughtful reviews. There was actually a review of Take Shelter. The woman wrote it from the perspective of being deaf and how important it was for her to see this film with a a deaf character. But then she spoke about the film in in kind of all of its details, and I kind of teared up over it, you know, because you put these things out in the world, and then then you move on from them. Uh, I I remember seeing the tenderness between Michael Shannon's character and his daughter's character. It really kind of brought home, you know, how important his family was to him. It added a certain element to the movie that might not have been there otherwise. How did you end up including a deaf character in Take Shelter? It's not a great answer because the truth is, you know, I was looking for ways to just put pressure on this man right. and and just, you know, weigh him down as much as I possibly could. And I thought that, you know, this is 2008 when I'm writing this, I thought that having an issue with healthcare and having an issue with a child um. and healthcare being linked to your job, which is I've always thought a strange thing in this country that our healthcare, so many people's healthcare is, you know, directly sure. tied to their employment. And I knew that at some point his employment would come into question, which would which would put, you know, trouble on their finances. But if if it also then endangered his daughter or, sure. or limited his daughter in some way, you know, it starts to become about the nature of communication and the idea of two hearing parents not being able to you know, easily communicate with their daughter. It starts to become part of a bigger theme in the movie, which is a breakdown of communication, a breakdown of communication in this marriage, you know, between these two people. And it seemed to kind of support this larger theme. We just dove right into that. Yeah, we just got in, we got serious. (laughs) But I had a question and I asked you this the other day and we touched on it, but I've been listening a lot to the first big band that you had, which was Red 40. And I'm a, I'm kind of obsessed with this band, but very purposefully, you haven't put that stuff out in the world, which which makes sense. But yeah, I'm not sure how well it's aged. It was real fun, you know, because I was 19 when that band started, and it was only around for a year or two. And we only played, you know, Little Rock maybe twice in Memphis, two right. or three times in Memphis, and Hot Springs. We played once in Hot Springs, right? <laughs> so we didn't do a whole lot. People that haven't heard, so Ben, it was a three piece band. And Ben sang, but he played technically lead guitar, but he that was back in the days when he was playing bass. So he played bass guitar, correct me if I'm wrong, but you played bass guitar kind of like it was the lead guitar? Kind of. I wrote all the songs on the bass, and I mainly played the, the D string and the G string and played little two-note chords. The bass usually carried the melody of the song, not just the traditional, you know, bottom-end bass notes. And then Colin Brooks... Who uh, he's actually playing in uh, Sam I Am now. Did you know that? Oh no, I didn't. They opened for Jawbreaker on some of those. They did, stories. and yeah, that same tour that Lucero did with them. Well, I just think not that you can go out and find it, but it's one day. You know, one day I think it'll come out more. And I, I just I think it was formative for me. And actually, <laughs> another thing you can't find anywhere. In my first film, Shotgun Stories, we use a little bit of it behind one of the scenes with uh, really? Alan Disaster's character. <laughs> That's but, good. But yeah, for those listening, if you can ever find it, yes, I get it's got like a lot of heartworn, you know, high school love lyrics and stuff, but it's, uh, I think it's pretty fun stuff. Maybe one day, I might have to go through and kind of cherry pick, maybe not release the whole discography again. I think it Whatever. goes toe to toe with any pop punk stuff I've ever heard, but not that you like that <sighs> term, but. I think if, uh, I don't know. I might, I might 
you're a much more successful musician now if Red 40 would have <laughs> just kept going. It's <laughs> close. But I pre- I'm glad that you like it still. But I think, too, one of the reasons I bring it up here is, and this feels a little prepared, maybe because it is, but my development as a storyteller and as a filmmaker, like, they, it just goes hand in hand with your development as a musician. Like, I grew up four years younger. I grew up, everything you did, I was, like, enamored with, obviously. And your storytelling directly feeds back into my films and then I don't know if my films have ever direct, directly led to your, ah, your that, songwriting or storytelling. Remind me, remind me in a little bit on that point. Oh, okay. Keep going. I don't want to interrupt Oh, you, well, I guess it has. Because this, this is really good stuff that I'm hearing right now. <laughs> but, Continue. You know, but, like, you wouldn't have me as a filmmaker without you as a musician. And uh, that began with, you know, that really began with Red 40. It was mostly about this feeling. And, you know, Little Rock, Punk Rock and being in high school and all those feelings. Are, it was such a great time. It was really great. And it was a great group of people and 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 a great moment that I kind of caught the tail end of. Have you seen that Towncraft documentary yeah, that kind I've of never documents seen it. It? I'm kind of ashamed. You I've should you should it. watch it. It's called Towncraft. It's a documentary. It gives you a good kind of idea of what the little rock punk rock scene was like scene was. in the kind of early nineties there. Yeah. I love the idea of it that like Little Rock was kind of this oasis on I forty between Memphis or Nashville and Dallas yeah. and like we were this little stop. Not to name drop, but I I become friends with Beto O'Rourke and uh, here, here <laughs> in Texas. And he was telling me about his days in a punk rock band and playing in Did Little they play Rock. the river? Or the yeah, they played at the, is it the Belvedere? The Belvedere. The, Holy the amphitheater at the river. Because that's why Little Rock was so cool, just for folks listening. The kids would also go down, and they discovered that the power outlets were always on uh, at this downtown riverfront park. And at the time, downtown Little Rock was just abandoned. It was yeah, a ghost town. Desolate. So you could go down there, plug in your PA, turn on your amps, and have a show. And no, nobody cared. No cops I, were called. No. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, and it was, was like a house party, but in a in a park. Park. Yeah. And for years, every, like three or four nights a week, there were shows at the river, um, yeah. just being self promoted and self booked. And then bigger bands, Boys Life from Kansas City, and I don't know, random bands from all over the country would book shows at the river and play for donations. And it was just a very cool. It was a cool way to grow up. And I was like, oh, this is how. This is how you can make music. And uh, I think that's totally. kind of influenced I mean, it, how I do it today. I think that's why there's a lot of overlap between indie music and indie film, you know, because it's also about the way you make a thing. And people were just making stuff and playing it for people. And it shook off some of the trepidation you might have about sure. putting yourself out there. Everybody was drummer. in a band. Everybody. Everybody. We were in a band. <laughs> I cloned Taylor with Bill Slater. Maybe we can put that out eventually. Well, that too. was a trash rock band, to to be clear. Yeah, kind of garage. Garage rock, like the Sonics kind of or something. I guess where I'm going with this whole thread is it was kind of formative, I think, for me. And, and I know you, but this kind of the nature of things, you know. And, and Red 40 maybe was about the early days of just like getting over expressing yourself in public or doing any of that stuff. But then early Lucero stuff, like when I was writing Shotgun Stories, the first Lucero album came out when I was still in film school in North Carolina yeah in the late 90s and so that by the time I was making shotgun stories in 2004 that was nobody's darlings yeah and so you guys were already well established but the thing and this is where I'm trying to take this is like the thing that was so cool about it was it didn't sound like music from anyone else you know and others out there can disagree or whatever I don't really care like for me personally it had like especially the early stuff like from the blue and the gray and the attic tapes tapes, yeah like that stuff felt it felt southern and but it also felt like old world. Yeah. I know we're both fans of the Dirty 3 for sure, which I used in Mud, but it's like 
I think it, it struck me at a time when I was trying to figure out what type of storyteller I wanted to be and what it meant to be from the South and to be us from the South. And your music was kind of the the best enunciation of what I wanted that to feel like. Rick Steff, the keyboard player, he calls it, he says we're a Southern Gothic rock band. Yeah. And I'll take that. For sure. I think there's a little bit of that in there, especially that early stuff. And the newer stuff, like Among the Ghosts, I think fits into that category too a little right. bit. But um, as well, to bring the point that I thought of earlier, whether your filmmaking influences my songwriting and my music, you were in between projects and you were talking about maybe doing a horror film or something in that genre. And maybe, you know, it might take place in Arkansas and it might have that kind of Southern Gothic, I don't know, vibe to it. And just some of the ideas you were talking about, which, you know, there's that old graphic novel, that idea that I've had forever that I've never fleshed out. Right. But then, so those ideas were floating around and then you had your ideas floating around. And then we were reading some of those old horror writers, you know, of course. that influenced H.P. Lovecraft. like uh, The Great God. Yeah. Uh, the, what oh, is it? Man, the Great God it? Pan? Yeah, yeah. Is that Macon? Is that how you say his name? I'm not sure. I think so. Which apparently influenced Lovecraft, which yeah. then, of course, influenced Guillermo del Toro and every oh, other yeah. single oh, person. And I decided that's when I decided to start working on that synthesizer project, uh-huh. which I ended up calling Last Wolf in the Woods. Which is uh, out now. It comes out on Bandcamp real soon. Great. I can't wait for people to hear it. And Jocelyn, my stepdaughter, sings on it. It's awesome. It's a completely different than anything I've done in the past, but it was but it was really fun. It was directly inspired, not by one of your films necessarily, but just our conversations. Our conversations and these story ideas getting thrown back and forth. And so, yeah, your stuff and your work 100% influences some of what I well, do. Well, what's funny is those conversations, so, you know, well, hell, we'll just let the cat out of the bag. I mean, there's nothing done because I haven't written a screenplay yet, but I've always... I've always wanted to make something like Pan's Labyrinth, but in the contemporary American South. And that thought is directly linked to those feelings that I get from listening to that attic tapes. But then, you know, we were talking about Southern folklore and Southern history, because for those that don't know, Ben, you know, was a history major in undergraduate college. And so he's vastly more well-read than I am when it comes to, well, lots of things, but certainly anything historical. And you recommended a book that annotated African-American folktales yeah. edited by um, uh, the Harvard professor. It's um, a gigantic book. It's a massive book, and it's one of those books that you can kind of barely scratch the surface of, but it's just, you know, it's just filled with such kind of amazing things. It talks a lot about how African culture, which was literally brought here, you know, through the slave trade, started to mix with Christian culture and Scottish and Irish and, and everything else and, and French in the South. Anyway, all these ideas speak to this, what I'm calling old world, like it came from another place. I think this idea that, that there are stories here that have been around for a long time that, are, that have come, and that's not even talking about things that came up from through Mexico and South America and everything else in this whole mix of things. And, you know, sure, people are going to watch my films and listen to your music and be like, what the hell are these guys talking about? But <laughs> the conversations that I have with you that I, that I cherish the most are when we're talking around those ideas, you know? Our parents were born in, a, in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, but they grew up in Alzheimer, Arkansas, which was like a little cotton town in the Arkansas Delta, about an hour uh, southeast of Little Rock, kind of. But it's just cotton fields and soybean fields and um, extremely rural. And just, you know, hearing stories from our, our grandparents and our parents about growing up there and just the way life was in Arkansas in the middle of the, you know, 1900s. 
and how that was influenced by, like you said, older cultures. But it was in this kind of transformative period, you know, the 40s and the 50s, and this kind of birth of a modern world. But just, but just even as a little kid driving out there to Mimi and Papa's house and driving through those fields at night, I don't know. It's something about it that stuck with me. And a lot of my songs take place on those little roads. And especially, not to step on you, but the going back to the idea of a horror film coming out of all that, yeah. you also have to add in the fact that we were, we were kind of on those roads during like the late 80s, early 90s, satanic panic, and, and the, <laughs> sure. the West Memphis 3 was happening not that far away. I don't know how much that really touched me, but I remember thinking it was, it was a haunting place. And if you were a little kid making up these stories in your head and worrying about stuff all the time, yeah, it could be extremely terrifying. But it was, I mean, at the same time, it's where our family was from. From what the stories that we've heard, it was this really interesting time because it was a shift between manual labor and mechanized labor. And, For sure. And when dad talks about Alzheimer, it was a very vibrant town. You know, our grandmother eventually owned the drugstore there. And mm-hmm. it was kind of this bustling little small town. And dad lived above the drugstore. And he could see the jail, like, was Out of kind of catty corner yeah. right across the alley. And the sheriff's name was Pink Boer. That was his name, for real. Nobody and gets he to was... steal that, by the way. Don't steal <laughs> we're, we're using it. It's going to be in our stories. Damn it. Copyright. Um, <laughs> but, uh... Uh, his family's going to sue us now. <laughs> yeah, he's like, it was my granddad's name. You're a disparaging <laughs> asshole. Um, but uh, I'm not saying anything bad about him, but people were scared of him. That's for sure. Very and I heard some kind of scary stories. But dad could see, like, yeah, the jail from their kitchen window or something yeah. crazy. And the, on the weekends, you know, all the people that lived on the farms would come into town. And the weekends got just crazy. Yeah. And I can't imagine that in all-timer Arkansas, you know. Yeah. But— you imagine straight razor fights. It's kind of funny that you and I have built up this kind of mythical place that's just a dying cotton town. It's true. The last real experience I had there, and we have to give credit to our middle brother uh, who's missing from this conversation, Matt Nichols, who actually in a weird way knows more about music and more like than about both of us than yeah. both of us. But um, he's a criminal defense attorney in Austin. But uh, the last time he took me to Alzheimer or we went was for a, a Clarence Carter show. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I remember his friend called who was going with us and called, uh, I guess he got a number for the Alzheimer's, you know, City Hall or something. And he sure. called and he was like, what's um, like, uh, can I can I talk to someone in the Chamber of Commerce? And I was like, Chamber of Commerce? <laughs> He's like, well, I guess you should talk to me. I'm the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he was yeah. like, well, I'm coming to hear Clarence Carter. He was like, yeah, that's out at Sam Cook's place. And he was like, I think this person is confused. <laughs> but apparently there was a farmer named Sam Cook who oh, had really? all this land. Wow. And they just mowed over a field and set up a stage. And oh. we went out to hear Clarence Carter play. And it was um, – Man, I'm sad I missed that. <laughs> it Man. was an experience. But that's anyway. like uh, – yeah, we were at the Memphis, like, Beale Street Blues thing one year. Me and Matt ran into Screaming Jay Hawkins, and uh, <laughs> and I got him to sign the $2 bill, which was awesome. He's like, oh, you guys, because we kind of stalked him for a little while. Yeah. And he had obviously seen us, and <laughs> we finally got the nerve to walk up to him. And, man, I don't know. He was talking about, like, yeah. His bass player or something hiding in the bushes in Paris. Or, I don't I'm know. not something crazy. I've only heard it told to me through Matt. Yeah. But he also said— <laughs> The first thing, like, you guys went up to me like, are you screaming Jay Hawkins? And he turned around and said, I don't know nothing. <laughs> he gave us, like, <laughs> shh, he hushed us. But, uh, and then Matt spent that $2 bill? Well, no, I got a $2 bill signed because oh. that's awesome. A $2 yeah. bill with Screaming Jay's signature. Perfect. Perfect. But Matt, of course, didn't have a $2 bill. So he got a $1 bill signed by Screaming Jay Hawkins and then bought a bacon egg and just biscuit with it the next morning. <laughs> back, back in the drink, drinking days. <laughs>
Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House Podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. So we've talked about Little Rock, but now like Memphis starts to come into our life, and really yeah. into your life. But I remember visiting Memphis in May, and, and yeah, those were kind of my high school interactions with Memphis. I ended up there because of a girl, and that kind of changed the trajectory of everything for me. I've got such a love-hate relationship with the, with the city. I've always, ever since I moved there, I've always missed Arkansas, and I always felt like I wanted to go back to Arkansas. And there was something, you know, I'd built it up like we talked about. I built it up in my head as this kind of mythical place. Right. And I love the mountains. And there's no mountains anywhere near Memphis. <laughs> but... Memphis has these musicians and these studios that, that Little Rock and places just don't have. Um, and you've got such awesome history. Right. And now, you know, I've recorded at Sam Phillips and at Sun and at Arden and at Royal and then down in Mississippi with Jim Dickinson at his place. And just, you know, having Jody Stevens from Big Star sing on All a Man Should Do. Yeah. Holy smokes. We And hanging out in the bar at Sam Phillips upstairs. There's a lot of stuff happening in Memphis that you can't get anywhere else. And I love that Lucero's, you know, a small footnote in that Memphis musical history. I remember one of the first films I saw. So I'm in high school and I'm starting to think about film school, not because I knew anything about film or had ever been in on a film set or anything like that. It just, I think because Tarantino was now playing in shopping malls with Pulp Fiction and like we had a local video store like everybody else did. And, sure. and the idea of American independent cinema was really an interesting place. But one of the first films that really grabbed me was Mystery Train. Yeah. This is right before, I guess, Sling Blade comes out. Sling Blade was huge for me for and for Arkansas us in kids. Arkansas. Wow. Yeah. Which Jim Jarmusch is in. You know, he sells him the French fries. That's right. He's, he works at the hot dog stand. You've got the sense like, oh, this is a community. Like, it's yeah. just right out there. And they're not too far from us. We could do it. We you know? could do it. And Mystery Train, not only did it have Screaming Jay Hawkins in it, but it showed a place that we kind of knew. Because Mama Betty had moved there. When we That's were kids. Right. So we'd gone to visit one of our grandmothers in Memphis for quite a while. And so Memphis starts to become, for me, like aesthetically, like a really important place, you know. And then you move there and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you guys and you're in Lucero and right. you guys are living above a, like a dollar store. Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of an independent kind of a dollar store. It's basically a, a warehouse like flop house. You guys had built walls. Upstairs. Upstairs. Yeah. We lived upstairs and... 
apparently that space was kind of owned by Mr. Lubin, who was kind of an old kind of hippie guy. Mm-hmm. And so he'd known a lot of musicians. And like apparently like Jim Dickinson had played in bands that practiced up there. Oh, wow. And they played in the basement sometimes too. And wow. um, so the owner of the building, our landlord, had connections with that kind of 60s, 70s Memphis music scene. And so was it all just there. legend that Elvis did Kung Fu there? No, for a little while it was a karate studio. Because um, <laughs> he, I guess, oh, I'm going to get... I'm going to get his name wrong. But his uh, his karate instructor had his dojo where the high tone originally was. The high tone, the club in Memphis that Lucero played all the time in the old days. That was his dojo. And then when Elvis broke off and started his own Tennessee Karate Institute, <laughs> that was where Lucero <laughs> lived. That was our warehouse. The Elvis um, movie yet to be made. Well, it was the coolest place ever that your like, cool rock and roll punk rock brother could be living in Memphis. And I'm coming from college and I'm coming and staying there. And, and that's where you'd go into Ben's section. We'll call it a room, but like the <laughs> section that he slept in, you always had these amazing photographs up on the wall because Ben's also an artist, as a lot of you, you all may know. And um, all of his drawings and other things. And he'd always have cool books. And, um, and sometime around in there, it must have been around 2003, 2002, I don't know. That's when I found a copy of Danny Lyons, The Bike Riders, uh-huh. sitting on your coffee table. You hadn't written the song Bike Riders yet, right. which is on Nobody's Darlings. Yeah, so it would have been around 2003, 2004, right there. Yeah. And, you know, moving with this theme of like, you know, basically, we could say me being inspired by Ben or me just stealing a bunch of <laughs> shit from Ben all the time. But like, you know... I'm glad this is being officially documented. So Danny Lyon was a photographer that photographed Motorcycle Club in Chicago in the mid-60s. And uh, the book had originally been released um, in the late 60s, but then had been re-released, I think, for the first time. Maybe. But it had this new cover, and it had this amazing black and white photograph at the top of these motorcycle riders kind of going up over a crest. And, and the bottom was bright red with these white letters that said the bike riders on it. And I just, like, from that moment on, I was like, well, that is everything. That's, That's everything cool. that I want to do with a movie and now you know we're sitting here at a post facility in austin owned by a couple of friends of mine and we're you know we're editing my film the bike riders uh so good it's pretty it's amazing how it kind of comes full circle like that sure yeah when i picked up i mean i was just bumming around at barnes and noble and found stumbled across a book and i was looking at it and it impressed me that these people from the 60s looked a lot like the people i was hanging out with yeah they were like punk rock kids and so i bought it and then i read those interviews I was like, ah, oh, these are awesome. Yeah. And so I, then I kind of, yeah, went through the interviews and just kind of picked details here and there and built this story up kind of around Kathy and Benny. And that became the song. Right. Which, uh, yeah, and now we're now there's a full movie version, yeah, a which movie. is awesome. I don't know when this movie comes out. Exactly. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but, yeah, so then, I, you know, so I make this movie and I've got Tom Hardy and Austin Butler and Jodie Comer along with a million other incredible people because it's about a biker gang. So it really is like the physical manifestation of kind of our, you know, blended relationship. Like it seems like the culmination. You and me, our relationship. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it'll just keep going. It's not the last time even. I mean, you know, I guess to volley it back to you too, you know, I had been approached to write a script out of a a New Yorker article called Yankee Commandante by David Gran. It's a brilliant article. And an incredible story about a guy from Ohio who went down to Cuba to fight with Castro. William, William Morgan. William Morgan. And then you, that, because I don't think you would have done that without, you didn't know well, about that article. Without. I saw the PBS documentary. Oh, on your own. And I remember I watched enough. that documentary 
And I immediately texted you. And I remember in the text, if you look back through your text, I pretty much typed out the whole story, story yeah. in this text message. I was like, this, we got to do this. I was kind of impressed at how quickly you texted back. You're like, George Clooney owns the rights. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. Which luckily he gave up. <laughs> gave up. And, uh, and yeah, you wrote a great screenplay for it. Which unluckily has not been made. <laughs> not yet. I wrote the song already. But you wrote the song already. Yeah. Which confuses people. You got how people are going to think yet again. Yet again. Man, he just, man, he for just the, makes movies about Lucero. For stuff. the record, well, hell, none of it's my idea, but <laughs> I stole that from somebody we else. We had the same idea at the same time, basically. I stole it from a documentary and you were stealing from the New Yorker article. I guess it says something like we're all, we're kind of in tune, I guess, in terms of what we... Always looking for a stories, good stories to tell. Always looking for good stories, but also in what one. we think is cool. I mean, my, my pitch for it, just so people out there know who don't know about it, you know, there were two foreigners to rise to the rank of Commandante in Castro's Revolutionary Army. One was Che Guevara. Right. And the other was this guy from Ohio. That no one's ever heard of because Che, well, they buried his story. Or Castro buried his story. We were doing research after I wrote the script, you know, and we, we reached out to a somewhat younger, you know, historian in Cuba who was actually pro-regime. Right. And, and we let him read the script just to see if he was like, this is, you know, it was just a kind of a fascinating thing to hear and he actually really liked the script, but but he said, no, no one in Cuba will know who William Morgan is. Right. He's considered one of the black beasts of the revolution. Right. And But also it goes back to a, an archetype I know I'm into, which is this idea of, and although he's from Ohio, so he's not Southern, but this idea of, of kind of working class people that they aren't traditionally smart, but they know how the world works and they they actually end up solving things that maybe more traditionally educated people wouldn't solve. And I think William Morgan did what he did just out of sheer grit and stubbornness. And, and a desire to prove himself. To be important. You know, maybe there's some of that in Johnny Davis from the bike riders. Yeah. He wanted to build this thing. Yeah. But then the thing kind of grows unwieldy. Gets out of, yeah. out of control. They're aspirational, you know, which we are too. Um, hopefully we don't end the way those guys are. <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully our music and movies don't kill us. And now I ruin the end of the bike riders. <laughs> <laughs> Just delete, 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 delete it all. Um, but, <laughs> let's I mean, see, what other the, movies can I give the way? <laughs> it's in the book. It's in like it's the true. stories are out there already. Yeah. It's not like uh, it's not yeah. like we're writing the final episode of Game of Thrones this or nothing. This is true. No, this is true. These already exist. <laughs> this is true. We're stealing from other people already. This is true. So you mentioned uh, Sling Blade earlier. Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, did you ever get to meet him? I did. Yeah, it was like the greatest, like twenty five minutes ever. I just talking about Arkansas and Arkansas guys, you know. Yeah, well, I'll tell this anecdote. Yeah. So I was doing press for my film Loving, and it's so funny. Like it's such a machine. It, it when you're out in L.A. and and you've got they put you in a hotel room, and you sit there and like journalist after journalist comes in and and asks you three questions, which are all the same, and you answer them. Well, when I walked in, here we are with Loving, which is supposed to be an awards contender. And on the floor just above us, Billy Bob Thornton is doing press for um, uh, Bad Santa 2. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> which I'm a massive fan Classic. of. Classic. And, um, and I, I said something to my publicist, Elena. I said, you know, ah, man, I'm such a, such a fan of Billy Bob Thornton's. I've never met him. She was like, I know his publicist. Do you want me to see? Ooh, and, um, yeah. and she, you know, came in and was like, he's got like 20 minutes. Like, right. Like at lunch. And so – I don't know if I went to his room or what, but we sat there and he was so laid back and nice. And uh, and I had to, I knew my time was limited, so I just jumped right in. And he gave me some compliments. He was like, ah, I really like your films and David Gordon Green's films. And it was really That's nice awesome. of him. But I was like, we have to talk about All the Pretty Horses. <laughs> because I think All the Pretty Horses is a 
brilliant film. But I don't think its form is brilliant because it's pretty notorious that Harvey Weinstein went in and chopped it, chopped it to hell, changed the score. And I think it like, I think it like broke, you know, Billy Bob Thornton in a way, you know, not to be an armchair, you know, whatever. But, but the way he talked about it was really beautiful. And you could always watch that film and say, well, whoever chopped this had a fundamental misunderstanding of All the Pretty Horses. All the Pretty Horses, to me, is a buddy movie. And they, you know, they tried to make it this romance, Hmm. which there is romance in it. I'm not saying there's not, but that's not really the point that wasn't the whole the that wasn't the novel with penelope cruz's character and matt damon's character and it just felt like a it, this beautiful thing that got derailed and so so I, I start to ask him about it and he tells me just he talks to me about it and he talks about screening for it and really very selfishly i'm just i had heard a rumor that sometimes he'll invite people over to his house mm. and show them a dvd of the original yes. and i'm like i just want that to happen uh, you gotta, in my, you gotta in my call life. me i wasn't brave enough i think to ask for that experience but it's not over. Well, apparently he's heard of Lucero. I hear down through the grapevine. You would think. They were in the studio at the same time as we were in Arden one time, and he borrowed a bass guitar from us. Yeah. He knows we exist. I don't know oh, if he's a fan or not. Man. But maybe. He has to. We just all have to hang out. We're just putting this out there. We're just putting this out there <laughs> for people <laughs> that know anybody. Just pass our number along. We just want to, I don't know, we just want a night to hang out <laughs> and uh, and get weird. But yeah, he told me, he told me a story about... I don't know how Mike Nichols was involved, but but had watched a bit, and and he said he walked out of the screening in tears and was like, "That's the greatest American movie I've ever seen." Oh wow! And like the original version, the his original cut. his his cut, his cut. And oh, I just man. I'm so desperate. Uh, yeah, I I'm so see desperate that. for it. And like now that Harvey Weinstein is you know in jail and the piece of shit, then like like maybe it's free. Maybe like somebody maybe so. That's the other thing. If anybody's listening, like like let's let's go, guys. Like I I have no social media presence, but let's. Somebody start a petition. Well, now that brings us to Cormac McCarthy, which I made a whole record called Last Pell Light in the West, which based is on Blood Meridian. But all the time, you know, everybody knows my brother Jeff, and they know what you do for a living. And like, ooh, all right, you wrote the soundtrack. When's Jeff going to make this into a movie? Right. I'm like, well, this would not work as a soundtrack. I'm glad that's nice of you to say. <laughs> Although. I, I love the songs, but uh, I'm like, I don't know if anybody could make Blood Meridian into a film. Yeah. And to be um, fair, I did use that music as a soundtrack <laughs> in my movie Mud. <laughs> and so Oh, that's right. But sure, it wouldn't make a good soundtrack. <laughs> I mean, those songs are brilliant and that book is brilliant. That book was really tough for me though. You read it long before and understood it long before I did. I went through this period. It was honestly with Cormac McCarthy and Faulkner. We were given Faulkner in high school. Sure. And I just it was too. It's hard. It was too soon. I was we in eleventh grade. Idiots I in high school. I, I, I'm still an idiot, and I and like and the. True. But I, I went back. It was mid two thousands. I went back and sat down with Go Down Moses, which I had been mm-hmm. assigned in eleventh grade, and was like, I am going to read this book. Right. And like, and I had a flow chart for like all the McCaslins and all the stuff. I've got that flow chart. I've got your copy of Go Down <laughs> Moses because it's like a family tree. Like it's very confusing. And by the end, what I realized about Faulkner and I'll tie this into McCarthy, was that Faulkner is unlike any other writer that's ever existed that I know about. He taught you how to read his book in the first half. And then by the second half, like he just lands these like knockout, emotional, dramatic punches. Like you have to commit yourself to the first half of that book. And the rewards in the second half, if you've committed to it, are so deep and so effective that I've honestly never experienced a book like that. Well, the thing I've been thinking about, so 
and we can say it here. I don't know if people want to, but I'm in talks to possibly adapt um, Cormac McCarthy's new novels, um, The Passenger and Stella Maris. And, um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. Man, but, I feel bad. I did those on audiobooks. I got to go back and read them. You have to read, read, them. read them. Yeah. Well, and I have to read them. After you finish them, you need to go back and read The Passenger again because he has it ordered as you read The Passenger and then you read Stella Maris. And then you read The Passenger again, you think. That, um, makes, that I read, about right. There was a, a, a critique in, in The Nation I recently read, and he was like, I wish I had read Stella Maris first. And you're like, yeah, maybe. Mm. But you would have had a totally different experience with it. You're, he intends for you to go back and read it again. But it's but what's interesting about it, because did you ever read Sutri? No, I haven't read much of that East Tennessee stuff. I've it's, read all the westerns. It has more to do with the passenger than Blood Meridian in a lot of ways, because it it feels like um, the guy in the nation called it melancholia, but but it almost feels like purgatory. Hmm. Like the main character is in purgatory. Like the main character, yes, is melancholic, but is is kind of in this place where they're trapped by their emotions and what's happened in life. But it almost feels otherworldly at times. It's New of, Orleans in the eighties, which is which is the pastry, right? And like and but but when you think of when you think of it as purgatory, and obviously then that takes you to like religious themes and, and, and structures of heaven and hell and everything else, like Blood Meridian is definitely hell. <laughs> it could be, yeah, yeah, it could and, be. And, and I, don't, I don't know what that means yet. I, I'm still trying to wrap my hands around, honestly, I'm still trying to wrap my hands around the passenger, but Cormac McCarthy as a, as a whole. But I, I just read this thing in the nation. You should read it. I have to. Because um, the guy... He makes an interesting point, or the woman. I'm, I'm sorry to say I don't know. I didn't read the byline. But um, he basically says, like, for those of you who who are kind of complaining that this book doesn't, you know, wrap things up or, right. or, or whatever, he's like, y- you got Corn McCarthy wrong at the wrong time in his life. This is a man who's moved beyond that. Like, at 89 hmm. years old, like, he's writing – he's trying something different. Like, he's, right. he's working towards something different, which is um, – the longevity of of his thoughts, you know, I'm now paraphrasing, probably brutalizing what this guy wrote, <laughs> but like, um, but I don't know. There's, it's interesting. There's something about where we found Cormac McCarthy in his career, right? In this book, that I'm kind of interested in getting more into and, and unraveling a little bit for a film, possibly for a film, which is a you know unraveling an 89 year old author's. Thoughts genius on, authors. True. Thoughts true. on I the meaning I, of life and I existence I and, and why we're on and this you, planet. And you are going to unravel that and put it on film for us and no, entertain us for two hours. I'm going to come up with a cheesy action <laughs> ending and be like, drop the microphone and walk away. <laughs> but how do you fit it all into a movie? Or do you pick and well, choose? Well, that would be the or same question with Blood Meridian, you know, not to switch gears. But true. like, you know, I think um, – and the same company actually that, that – um, I worked with on the bike riders that has asked me to work on this. They have Blood Meridian, and um, but I've been told that Cormac McCarthy wants to write the script himself. Oh wow, really? That might be hearsay, but the but you know, and I mean, it, and I asked very pointedly. Actually, I was like, "Does he know how to do that?" Not not meaning like, <laughs> "Does he know how to write a screenplay?" I don't mean right, that. Right. Like, does he know how he would break? Like, does he right. have an outline? What are his? Yeah, <laughs> like I'm kind of fascinated because it feels like folly, right, to try to take a a book that dense and turn it into a two-hour film. I'd want to know what he thinks should be left out. Like, do you think there are novels that just can't be made into films? Like, I think No Country for Old Men and The Road kind of lent themselves I to being made I heard somewhere that films. No Country for Old Men started as a script and then he turned it into a novel. That and sounds it reads right. perfectly That like sounds that. right to me. But those two, you know, he got into a, 
a period of his writing where it was like, I just felt like he hit his stride, you know, between right. the road and No Country for Old Men. It was like, you know what? I can write more like Blood Meridian, but, it, you know, um, like here, let's just it's do just this, this, this effortless, let's just do this, this effortless, beautiful stuff, you know, right. that, that of course translates into a film very, very easily with the passenger. But it felt like No Country was, I mean, it makes so much sense. Like, and this is off of your question, you know, like I think the perfect literary material to be turned into a, a film is really a novella. Right. It's why Shawshank Redemption and Stand By Me uh, are two it, of the uh, greatest films ever made. What's of. that Brad Pitt movie? Um, with Legends of the Fall. Legends of the Fall was a novella, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like such an epic. That one still feels too long. <laughs> an epic movie. <laughs> I, I'm a fan. It's great. It's great. It's a novella. It's a novella. And it's because the truth is, you know, Yes, you can. There's a distillation process that can happen from a novel to a film, but why? Like, it, right. it depends, you know, it depends. And in a weird way, the only thing that gives me hope about The Passenger is that there's so much great stuff that, but it, and because it's somewhat untethered from a structure or an ending, that is, it's the only, much like Faulkner, that structure, that narrative structure can only exist in a novel. Right. Right. So, so whenever I hear about people trying to turn Faulkner into films, you're like, okay, great, but you have to come up with a, as intriguing narrative structure that is unique to the film as he did for the book. As his language is. And good, you can't good replace, freaking luck. You can't replace the language he used. Right. That's completely missing from a film. Right. Even if you have a narrator reading the prose exactly, yeah. it's not the same. We have to come up with some new element to put into the film to replace it, and that seems like a quite a task. You know, cinema language is completely different than literary language. Yeah, sure. And I'm not just talking about visuals. Everybody's like, well, it's just a visual medium. It's like, nah, nah, there there is story structure sure in in cinema that is different. And I'm quite I have to say like when it comes to the bike riders, I can't wait to see this thing go out into the world cuz it is not. I mean, I took a, you know, a book of photographs and disparate interviews right and turned that into a narrative film. Yeah. Um and I'm quite pleased with it. I'm I'm really excited. People may be confused. <laughs> like I you know, like it jumps around, like it does different things. And the way that the way that that has its own unique narrative structure, I think that would be the challenge, right? You know, for with, with something like the passenger as well, or Blood Meridian. Yeah, like you would have to kind of break it down to its essence and then build it back up. I'm excited for bike riders to come out, and I think you know, talking about structure, I think we've done pretty good with this little podcast here. We talked about stuff you've done in the past, what you're working on currently, and stuff you might work on in the future. Yes, and we've given everybody a good dose of all of it. I think we. I think we did thanks. pretty good. I think we did all right. Thanks yeah. for thanks for doing this, man. It feels like you were interviewing me. Yeah, to promote my new record. <laughs> called which should've, is called Should Have Learned By Now. Which <laughs> <laughs> Should Have Learned By Now. Don't do a podcast with Jeff. <laughs> the this this album is great, y'all. Y'all need to go out and buy this thing. Like um, All right, all right, all right. I after I listen to it, it always takes me several listens and then the lyrics just kind of start to seat and then the the hooks within the songs start to seat and this one, it's like all the others it just yeah, it's it started to work on me. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to it. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, I love talking to you. These conversations are always always so much fun. So hopefully we don't just annoy the people that have to listen to Whatever. this. Whatever. Y'all chose to listen to this. <laughs> this is on you. Thank you all very much for having us. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, all right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Ben Nichols and Jeff Nichols for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform, and check out all the great written stuff we've got at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.